0: Oh graveyard, oh graveyard, I'm walking through the graveyard. Lay this body down. I see. Welcome back to Hi. the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. Now, in this episode, I'll be putting some closure to this series I've been doing on W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, this volume um, on uh, of Du Bois' writing in the Library of America is, is, at least up to this point, the only volume of his writing They've published, there's enough that there could be a future volume, but for now, this is what we're gonna get. So in the previous episodes, I looked at his PhD dissertation, The Suppression of the Slave Trade, then I looked at Souls of Black Folk, then Dusk of Dawn, and then uh, over 20, maybe close to 30 of his of his essays published in various formats. Some were parts of books, chapters of books, some were actually longer essays that were published in the Crisis. But they deal with kind of the whole of his career. And I I looked at that in three chunks, each kind of with its own set of themes uh, at different points, you know, that Du Bois explored at different points in his life. And in this final episode, looking at the final hundred pages of this collection, and it's a pretty lengthy one. It's about 1300 pages altogether. Uh, One reason for that is the suppression of the slave trade. The first book is, is almost 400, but only half of that is text. The rest is like appendixes so if you cut out those 200 pages of appendixes from there it's it's still a you know an 1100 page uh, volume of his writing so it's worth it's worth picking up I think it's a really good anthology overall even though I had some gripes with it not including certain works and including other works just in fragments it's still strong but um, now the final hundred pages or so of this book includes articles from the crisis all published between 1910 when the crisis began and 1934 when Du Bois resigned from the crisis Now it's it's still in print uh, It first was printed in 1910 and it It is the the newspaper the official magazine of the NAACP so that that's it and it's You know, I really can only speak to the Du Bois era, because that's what I read here. Now, I read these essays probably a a couple of weeks ago, because the way this usually works is I I read pretty well in advance, and then I kind of come back and review and jot down some notes and think about what I want to say before finally recording. So it's been a while, and then I went back, I I thought at the time, especially as I was recording the last few episodes, I thought, you know, this will be tough to deal with because... I can't really go over these essays one at a time because, you know, mostly they're less than a page. Some are sometimes it's two in a page. You know, there's probably more than seventy or so little essays, maybe even up to a hundred of these tiny little essays in a hundred pages. They're not really essays; they're really articles in a newspaper, and they often they're like sometimes they're just blurbs and they're announcements and obituaries and things so it's, it's a mix and it's really not worth it to go through point by point but as i was reviewing it this you know today i guess it was this afternoon i come back and i think a lot of these are really really good and and this anthology itself sums up so much of your bois's thoughts and it doesn't really well so even if you just read these hundred articles i think you'd get a good snapshot of much of what he's saying, not nearly as rich as I think his his books are and some of his other essays, but still, it's all here. Um, so, but obviously, I'm not going to talk about each of these individually because there's just too many of them and they're too short. But I am going to kind of hit some of the main points, and I, I will mention some in particular that I think are, are rather interesting. Now, what is what's the core goal of the crisis. What was the core goal of the crisis when it first began publication in 1910? Well, here's what Du Bois wrote in like, I guess this was the very first issue, November 1910. Quote, it will first and foremost be a newspaper. It will record important happenings and movements in the world which bear on the great problem of interracial relations, especially those which affect the Negro-American. Second, it will be a review of opinion and literature, recording briefly books, articles, and important expressions of opinion in the white and colored press on the race problem. Thirdly, it will publish a few short articles. Finally, its editorial page will stand for the rights of man introspective of color, race, and the highest ideals of American democracy, and for reasonable but earnest, persistent attempts to gain those rights and realize those ideals. The magazine will be an organ of no-click or party and will avoid personal rancor of all sorts in the absence of proof to the country it will assume honesty of purpose on the part of all men north and south black and white so that's the kind of the statement of purpose for it and i, I would say now a lot of these essays i keep saying essays but really articles all of these articles are editorial and Du Bois, of course didn't write everything in the crisis but he wrote a lot of it and so sometimes he's writing like reporting doing reporting sometimes he's doing book reviews sometimes he's responding to letters to the editor sometimes he's the the you know providing the editorial material so it's a mixture of of content here but a lot of what we have here is really more the kind of stuff you'd see on the opinion editorial page of of contemporary newspapers um and i i would say this i think he's quite What he says in that statement of purpose in that first issue, I think is true in how he ran the crisis based on what I see here, that he did often engage readers. He tried to understand their point of view. And the few times we do have a back and forth where writers criticize the approach of the NAACP or criticize the approach of the crisis or or take a more kind of Washingtonian approach to the race problem. Du Bois did seem to listen to them and try to respond to the best of his ability to their actual ideas. And not in a in a very hostile way. So it is a public o- organ, and at times it it does read differently than what you see in his essays, because his audience is different. He doesn't really have the time here to go into extended arguments or to be really creative. Although some of these articles, these essay yeah articles, are creative. A few are allegorical in nature. They report on all sorts of things, though. There are things here on moral questions like gambling there's straight up political questions like should black people vote for the democratic party this was in the wilsonian election 1912 should should black people support women's right to vote you know those kinds of things and in that sense, it it has this much more of a political function, and I think some of his other writings, it talks certainly insists on the right to vote and the importance of political activism, but it wasn't so much interested in party politics and that that kind of more vulgar. Election cycle to election cycle, kind of way that you sometimes see in a newspaper, a magazine like The Crisis, which is going to be engaging in the politics of the day. So we have him engage things you don't have in his other work is him engaging with particular presidents, presidential candidates, and talking about and asking about their racial policies and the limit and describing the limitations, you know, of of their policies on on race. And so we got a, a, a nice mixture. I think the the editor of this anthology, Nathan Huggins, if, if you want to know, um, did a really good job of giving a broad picture of what he was kind of writing in the crisis. So it's not maybe not his best, but it it's a broad representation of what we have um, from from the crisis. So at this point, I'll I'll just I guess talk about a few of these articles and as. You know things come to my head I'll, I'll kind of try to connect them a little bit more again I, I think the best way is just trying to go into this and just just chew on these yourself because they're really they're really nice little gems and these are the kind of thing if you just read the souls of black folk or even dusk of dawn you're going to miss this aspect of of his writing and I, I think it's a real service that they took the time to include this because it, it must have been a lot of work going through the crisis and and finding these articles and choosing them and I don't know if rights are an issue for, the, for most of these, but, you know, maybe for some of them. So it was uh, just kind of it's impressive as an editorial job here and what was collected. And, and sometimes things are chosen because of the important people that are being talked about in the article. Like there's the obituary of Charles W. Chestnut, for instance. Okay, so I'll just j- jump into some of these directly. Um, 1911, June, there's an article called Business and Ph- Philanthropy and you know in a way he's he's talking a bit about strategy here he's talking about the best way to achieve racial progress and he does something which i think is hinted at in in books like uh, oscar wilde's the soul of man under socialism and talking about the limits of charity and the limits of philanthropy that that they're not that liberatory you know they, they make life more bearable for poor people or or oppressed people but they don't really have that job of, of uplift. So, you know, the way he puts it is business pays, philanthropy begs. Business is reality, philanthropy is a dream. Business first, philanthropy afterwards. Afterwards, Is it true? No, it's not. It is a foundation, falsehood of our perverted social order. So w- one part, one thing he's doing here though, is he does see, I mean, he's got a kind of a broad definition of philanthropy here. It's not just about, like charity so much he doesn't even really use the word charity here but he he sees it more as as kind of public service or social service or or kind of engaging in the public sphere in performing services necessary to human welfare is the way he puts it and he sees to see that as superior to just straight up business which he finds much more hard-headed and in, in in course but at the same time he doesn't see like philanthropy as itself the way out, uh, the way for, for social progress. So what I think he's calling for here is for, well, what he he seems to call for professions and quote unquote business. Although he kind of uh, is a bit hostile to the term business in this particular article, but he thinks business should be focused first on what is, what's people need. So there's, there's almost like a unity between philanthropy and, And business in a way or or like people's need for a career and a need for job to be one of social welfare and social benefit. Now in 1913 in March right when uh, Wilson was inaugurated he he addresses the relationship between black people and the Democratic Party of course traditionally black people voted Republican and then much of the in in the early 20th century you had disfranchisement in much of the South so it didn't mean all black people didn't vote but you know regionally they could vote. In some parts of the South, they could vote. And there's always a certain population of black people who could vote, even with disfranchisement laws, although it varied, right, from from state to state based on the local means by which disfranchisement was achieved. But of course, in the North, you didn't have the same kind of laws. And he starts to be talk. he starts to talk about, how, you know, black support for Wilson and for the Democratic Party. And that's not really going to be codified, probably till the New Deal and and not till the 60s. Um, but, you know, we start to see, at least in Du Bois's mind, we start to see growing support for the Democratic Party by black people. And he does say, partially, you owe. Well, yeah, he kind of says, well, you owe us a bit because we helped you put you over the top. Now, if you remember, 1912 was a really controversial election. That's the election where the Republican Party was split between uh, Taft, the candidate, and then Roosevelt, the former president, came back threw his hat in the ring, ran uh, on the Progressive Party, the Bull Moose Party, and then you also had Eugene Debs, so it was a pretty wild four-way election. In fact, even Eugene Debs got a lot of votes in that election, and Wilson won because of a divided Republican Party, more than white support for his for his position. Um, but he does pretty directly address Wilson's own views on race, which, of course, were not always very fortunate. They, he certainly was a racist. Um, and somewhere in here, I think it's another essay, another article, Wilson is called out for his, his kind of sponsorship of or his, his open praise for the birth of the nation, something that NAACP tried hard to get taken out of theaters. And he talks about in these essays, and there's a couple of them, addressing Wilson about how much encouragement there is among, among about black people about Wilson's program and policies and what he's trying to do yet that kind of that promise is still unfulfilled and he's just reminding wilson that black people do vote and the democratic party has not they shouldn't feel they they've they've won this vote and then he does address them on specific issues like lynching like black uh, members in the in in high office in in the government about you know lynching about votes civil, you know black black man in civil service is something that calls for here too so there's a bunch of like political direct political issues he brings up here so in a sense again we see that the crisis articles are much more kind of day-to-day responding to the politics of the day now they have a lot of feedback into his larger more thoughtful works but you know they are more you know you know how are we going to vote how are we going to make decisions you know what policies are we going to support what are we going to push for in you know in legislatures now in one it's actually an exchange published in may 1914 between a man named charles f dole who writes a letter to the editor and then the response by by Bois. so what does dole say first off now some of dole's criticism of the crisis are petty like he questions like why do you capitalize negroes you know so much i don't really know the heart of of his his problem with it but he, he talks more about the tone and he's kind of tone policing the crisis. And I, I think that is kind of a, to use kind of a modern language. He's tone policing the crisis saying, you know, why are you so hard on, on, on Ro- Roosevelt? Why are you so hard on Wilson? Um, or why, why, why aren't you more patient, right? You gotta understand evolution takes time. You call yourself progressive, but are you really progressive if you, you're demanding such radical change? You know, he talks about how when you called out the story of this lynching, it was embarrassing to to President Wilson. And and so basically the heart of it is is calling out the crisis for tone policing. And then Du Bois's response is is it comes down to. He goes over like every you know what black people are facing in america and he has this long list almost a page long of we're denied education we're driven under the church of christ we're forced out of hotels labeled like dogs when we travel seldom get decent employment he goes on listing these things and then he asks so what would you have us do based you know be silent is what you basically calling us to do because that's usually what the tone policers want from people is is silence so that's that's a it's an interesting one to read and I think just think it's an a nice example from the early 20th century of it of, uh, an activist group being challenged on the way they present their arguments and then the, a very effective I think response to the criticism that's sometimes given out that that people are a little too uppity now in the middle of the suffrage debate also in 1914 and an mm-hmm. article called votes for women. Du Bois comes out supportive of, of the women's vote, um, saying any extension of democracy is good for democracy. Um, our own position that it's wrong to take away the vote from black people is the same logic we used to say the vote should not be taken from women. Uh, he thinks enfranchising black women will, especially in the north where more black people could vote, would just increase the number of black voters in America, and that would be a good thing. And, and he also thinks that enfranchisement of white women in the South will also help in terms of policy. So I don't know if there's any truth to that. You know, of course, the vote was granted to women in 1920, or 1919 and the 20th Amendment. Did uh, that change these things? I don't know, but he thinks it could be. Um, yeah again the same year in fact the same month we have an article called the prize fighter which is about jack johnson now this is simply notable because you know, boxing is a great american sport uh, and of course johnson was an important black boxer of of the era so this article is Du Bois talking about the contribution of jack johnson and the, the meaning of him in the sport and this was a sport that that was more difficult to, to segregate than the team sports. What's not talked about is his 1912, uh, the prosecution under the Mann Act that Jack Johnson faced, which was certainly a racially charged um, accusation. Now, why not talk about that? I think that's an interesting question that maybe we could think about. Is it just because the implication of, of the case... Well, if we just read the Wikipedia article on this, it <clears throat> says so on October 18, 1912, Johnson was arrested on the grounds that his relationship with Lucille Cameron violated the Mann Act against transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes due to her being an alleged prostitute. Her mother was also swore that her daughter was insane. Cameron soon became his second wife, refused to cooperate, and the case fell apart. Less than a month later, Johnson was arrested again on a similar charge. This time, he alleged another, and the woman... Another alleged prostitute named Bell Schreiber was with, who, with whom we had been involved in 1909 and 1910 testified against him. <clears throat> so, wow, that's interesting. In the courtroom of Kensaw Mountain Landis, the future commissioner of baseball who perpetuated the baseball color line until his death. Johnson was convicted by an all-white jury in 1913. That's not, ta- I mean, this case is not talked about here, but I think Du Bois doesn't want to go there because of the the kind of the juicy details of the case itself or maybe they're talking about somewhere else in the crisis i don't know but not in this particular article now i'll come back to boxing when we look at aj liebling it may not be a while till i get to him but the library of america has two volumes of liebling's writings one is his world war ii writings and the other is um some of his journalism but particularly the sweet science and i'm looking forward to looking to that but it, It's not on my docket right now, so I might get to it in the future. So he's got an interesting article in 1914 again uh, called, Does Race Antagonism Serve Any Good Purpose? And he's a bit, it's more of a dissection of the whole question of, of race antagonism. I mean, he gives four reasons why people tend to support racial antagonism or kind of the idea that That history and society are broken up into races that are mutually antagonistic. The one is the first is kind of the social Darwinian argument that this is kind of just an extension of our desire to survive. And we we need groups to do that. The second is quote racial antagonism whether instinctive or not is a reasonable measure of self-defense against undesirable racial traits. And that's that's kind of the that's more the kind of the racial purity argument that that white people would argue we we need to keep these the bad aspects of the other race and perhaps some black people are making the same case. And he doesn't think either of these arguments are, are that good. 3 race antipathy antipathy as a method of race development. So this would be more the idea of the black nationalist idea or the national the racial nationalist idea that through separatism we can have kind of an uplift and and development. And then finally race antipathy as the method of group specialization. And there the argument is that like different groups do different things quite well. Um, And he kind of just leaves us on a question like these are the arguments and these are often used. And, And he's saying like when we talk about race and antipathy and racial antagonism, that there's different reasons people will be embracing it. So it's more of a taxonomy of of the question than... And we know from his other writings, he had a very complex idea on the interrelation between being American and being black and being both at the same time and what that meant for the black mind and black consciousness and and the struggle and all of that. In January 1915, he... He talks about an editorial, The Alleged Failure of Democracy. No, this is what he wrote. So it was published in the Boston Globe, The Alleged Failure of Democracy, and then reprinted in The Crisis. And what this is about is really Reconstruction. And I think it's, it's similar to what he wrote maybe in Souls of Black Folk and later would write in Black Reconstruction in America. But it just talks about democracy as something that was actually setting root in the South in reconstruction and then that was taken away and he he points to three things that reconstruction governments did particularly well one is the public school system to giving poor whites the vote who who didn't have it or didn't have much political say in the old cotton south and then basically beginning of a social welfare system he calls it an almost scenario institutions and social uplift Quote, the Negro was not disfranchised because he had failed in democratic government, but because there was every reason to believe he would succeed. And it was his success which the Beatmasters feared more than his failure. We have here reports on lynching. There's a handful here on lynching. There's another one here on women's suffrage. Oh, this is interesting. So March 1918, He has an article called Paul Leroy Robeson. So Paul Robeson was born in 1898. And if you don't know, he's a very famous African-American singer. um, Very influential in the middle of the century. uh, Very much on the political left. He had pan-African attitudes as well. Very much a strong believer in the anti-fascist struggle. And you can search him on YouTube. You can even hear him singing like the Chinese, national anthem in Chinese and uh, the Soviet to him, to the Soviet Union, things like that. So he was very much on the political left. But this was written in 1918, so Paul Robeson would have been 20 years old. And it's about his athletic achievements and as a college student in, in, and in high school and at, at Rutgers. So he enters Rutgers and it mostly talks about his sporting achievements. And then at the very last line, it says he's a baritone soloist. Uh, And now, of course, everyone knows Paul Robeson as the soloist, as the singer, but uh, it's only mentioned here in the Afterthought. So I think that's a really interesting addition here. It doesn't really add much to understanding Du Bois, but uh, but what's important here is that the crisis was paying attention to successful students and, and honoring them in the pages of of the crisis as much as as much as they could and as much as they knew about people. In 1919, we start to get a handful of of articles that that go back to this wilsonian moment you know what is there is what does national self-determination mean for africa for asia but particularly africa was their concern and this this article from february 1919 is called reconstruction in africa and it basically asks for independence to the german colonies in africa and that being the foundation for a reconstruction of of africa from colonization to freedom he's got other another essay on another article on the returning soldiers which also says we're returning with full expectations of achieving now a victory for democracy at home and that means destroying jim crow the same year he has to deal with the russian revolution and the red scare and basically radicals and you know one thing that a lot of american communists and people on the left did in these years was to point out racism in jim crow you know, as a reason to support socialism, right? Like, we won't do that to you. And so the question to the crisis, which is even though Du Bois would end up being essentially a communist and he had these left-wing sympathies, he couldn't now. always advertise that in the crisis, which is a, was a much more mainstream publication, a much broader audience, and it had practical political goals that it wanted to achieve. So it had to be a little bit more careful about how it talked about these questions. And here's what he says. He says, our task, therefore, as it seems to the crisis, is clear. We have to convince the working class of the world that black men, brown men, and yellow men are human beings and suffer the same discrimination that white workers suffer. We have, in addition to this, to expose the cause of the white worker, only being careful that we do not do it in a way to jeopardize our cause. We must, for instance, have bread. If if our white fellow workers drive us out of decent jobs, we are compelled to accept indecent wages, even at the price of scabbing. It is a hard choice, but who is to blame? Finally, despite public prejudice and clamor, we should examine with open mind in literature, debate, and in real life, the great programs of social reform that are day-to-day being put forward, end quote. So that is sort of code for we need to consider what's going on in Russia as a way maybe to achieve a more just and fair society. So it does come out open-minded on radical. Ideas I I think actually the heart of this is kind of a a bit of a criticism of Claude McKay who gets called out um, for maybe being a bit too radical we in 1921 we have a article on President Harding and his commitment or lack thereof of social equality and so we got the same kind of calls for education the right to vote uh, racial equality and and all that. In 1922, we have a couple of essays, and one was written in May, and then there was a follow-up in September on Lincoln, and I'll I'll read the first one. This is what Du Bois said about Lincoln in May 1922, and then he got, like, I guess some flack for this, and he responded. But let's look at the first one. Abraham Lincoln was a southern poor white of illegitimate birth, poorly educated, unusually ugly, awkward, ill-dressed. He liked smutty stories and was a politician down on his toes. Aristocrats, Jeff Davis, Stewart, and their ilk despised him. And indeed, he had little outwardly that compelled respect. But in that curious way, he was big inside. He had reserves and depths. And when Habit and Convention were torn away, there was something left to Lincoln. Nothing to most of his contemners. There was something left so that at the crisis, he was big enough to be inconsistent, cruel, merciful, peace, loving a fighter, despising Negroes and letting them fight and vote, prosecuting slave, protecting slavery and freeing slaves. He was a man, a big, inconsistent, brave man, End quote. Now, I think from our standpoint, if you've read recent scholarship on Lincoln, there's nothing controversial about much what he says. Maybe he's a little bit harsher than he needs to be. But he's trying to make the point that, you know, the, you know, the great emancipator, you know, let's not go too far with that. It's sort of what he does, I think, through the back door in Black Reconstruction in America when he talks about how slavery ends and he focuses on black activism on the plantation when doing that. And the response is, basically it's called out for this, and it's a bit of a sorry, not sorry. He does reassert, though, that he does think Lincoln was one of the great men of the 19th century, but he doesn't really back off from the idea that there are scars and black spots on the image of of Lincoln that black people need to accept. And they can't just kind of embrace fully the great emancipator vision without some qualifications and some deeper thought. So 1925, November, we have an article called The Challenge of Detroit, which deals with the great migration, the growing black population, which jumped from in 1900 from around 4000 to 50,000 by the time the article is written with predictions of uh, reaching 70,000 by 1930. we got a nice little graph that, that shows that. And so on the one hand, this is a place for black people to reach prosperity they couldn't reach in the South. And he wants to acknowledge that, but it's also a place of mob violence and racial hostility and racial, you know, just white supremacist violence in American cities targeting often these very upwardly mobile black people and it's it's a worrisome article it doesn't have any clear answers it's just reporting on the growth of racial violence in detroit when we could probably actually find similar trends in many other cities that that were demographically transformed by the great migration Um, jumping ahead to march of 1928 we have an article on robert e lee which is kind of funny he's trying to deal with this aura around robert e lee of course the confederate general robert e lee who fought to defend slavery but for some reason has you know been was at the time at least i I don't know if that's still the case but but kind of treated with soft hands by many writers and historians of of the south i mean this is du bois comes right on says it One thing, one terrible fact militates against this, and that's the inescapable truth that Robert E. Lee led a bloody war to perpetuate human slavery. Well, what what was? Well, how does he normally look, though? And it's this personal comeliness, good-looking, aristocratic birth, genteel, military prowess, kind of honorable, you know being an honorable general and brilliant. I mean, this is kind of the package you get in a lot of the positive depictions of Robert E. E. Lee. And I think what Du Bois does in this is really brilliant because he says that's all the South can get. The South's greatest heroes can only be good-looking and aristocratic. They can't be morally accountable because any of their leaders are going to be bound to that system of white supremacy and slavery. So the best they can do is find a genteel aristocrat and i think it's it's quite a bitter and, and brutal article and i think it's quite true I, I think it explains a lot of why these people get uplifted you know the reason you don't have the same kind of figures uplifted in the north is that they're i guess at least in du Bois's mind actual heroes that people can point to that are much better examples uh, to live your life by and to to present to lift up as historical heroes in january 1930 he writes about gambling crap shooting different lotteries and things like that and basically saying this is all bad for for black people and urging some laws that would eliminate or reduce the amount of of this kind of gambling going on so not much to say just that you know i don't know if he's a i don't think he's moralistic but it's it's something he kind of plays with in dusk of dawn and souls of black folk too is this problem of of crime and what crime means and he doesn't think Blacks are more likely to be criminals, but I think he does acknowledge that it hurts black people more than it hurts white people, both that it perpetuates uh, the imagery, it gives fuel ammunition to the white supremacists who wanna argue that black people are just criminals. And then it also, you know, black people were so poor to begin with. This is just sapping money from from their communities. In January, 1933, Du Bois wrote an obituary to Charles W. Chestnut. Um, And of course, I did a whole series on him, so I thought I'd call that out here. Uh, what's notable about this obituary is he does see Chestnut essentially as a white man who chose to be black and to take on a black identity. I don't know if I agree with that, but uh, I guess I'll, uh, that's that gives you an idea of the kind of things in these essays. I, I've, there's a lot more and I could go on and on talking about it, but I don't want to bore you. I, I just want to. I urge you to take a look at these um, because I, I do, if you do get this anthology, don't skip over this part, I guess is what I want to say. It might be tempting. It's so long to begin with, but there's a lot here. And then uh, it, it ends with August 1934, uh statement, a uh, letter by Du Bois saying why he's going to resign from the crisis, and the reason he does this is he, he says, I have some criticisms of... The, you know some of the policy of the, cri- of the crisis, then, you know I can't really honorably be its its editor anymore. Um, but but that's that's it. So I, I think that also does it for my coverage of of this volume of W. B. Du Bois's writing. A really good one, a really great anthology, with the exception of maybe the suppression of the slave trade, which I think could have that space could have been better used. Still, but um, there it is. So um, what's next? Well, well, I guess what's next is going to be um, James Johnson, James Waldon Johnson. I I promised a series on turn of the century black writers, and I was going to do Chestnut, Du Bois and Johnson. So that's what's next. Um, Now, what we have with Johnson are his only novel, the autobiography of Next Colored Man. And I'll just do that in the next episode. It'll be a one off. Because it's pretty short. Then we have his autobiography along this way, not to be confused, um, you know, with the autobiography of the Ex-Colored Man. Even though there <clears throat> there is stuff drawn from life in that book, but in that novel, but they're different. That's going to take a while. That's probably before episodes or or five. Then we have some of his essays and some of his poems. Um, Johnson was uh, in, in, involved in law. He was involved in writing music. He was involved in the arts. Uh, not primarily a novelist, not even primarily a writer, I would say. But you know, he he did a lot of different things. So he's kind of a bit of a jack of all traits and a very different voice than what we get with from Du Bois or or Chestnut. So I think it'll be interesting to compare these writers. He's a little bit younger too than Du Bois and Chestnut. So that that'll do it with for Du Bois. As I said, um, if you have any questions or thoughts about anything i talked about in terms of Du Bois? i'm sure i missed a lot of great important stuff if if you have anything to point out that i missed or should have talked about please let me know Uh, best way to do that is to write me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com and i will be back next time with uh my review and my comments on the autobiography of the x-color band by james waldon johnson thanks again for listening and I see you next time the i'm walking through the moonlight Play this body